you all to our inaugural U.S.-Japan Global Dialogue. The U.S.-Japan Alliance is poised to enter a new era, to expand its focus beyond Northeast Asia, and to cooperate on next-generation technology, development issues, civil society development, and, of course, the maintenance of security. <clears throat> this dialogue aims to identify opportunities to apply our competitive advantages and make recommendations relevant to advancing the security and prosperity of Japan, the United States, and the world in the growing contest between free and open societies and authoritarianism. <clears throat> in that contest, there are a few allies more important than Japan, with whom we have shared a unique six-decade partnership. We are pleased today to welcome our esteemed guests to today's panel, Ambassador Koji Tomita, Senator Bill Haggerty, Ambassador John Roos, and our own Hoover Senior Fellow, H.R. McMaster. We're also pleased to celebrate how our histories connect with a special exhibit of Japanese and Japanese-American collections from our world-renowned library and archives, which we invite you to view after the luncheon just across the hall, down the hall, in the Traitel Pavilion. The Hoover Institution has had a long connection with Japan. Indeed, Hoover was the first research institution to have a presence in Japan. The Hoover Library Tokyo office was established in November 1945 following the recommendation by Stanford alumni in Japan. An advisory committee, primarily consisting of Japanese academics, was later formed. The core of Hoover's archival Japan collection was built from 1945 to 1952, with a primary focus on collecting material related to communist activities in Japan. Later, many allied officers who had served in redevelopment <clears throat> who had served in Japan donated their papers to Hoover, showcasing the redevelopment process in Japan. The collection continues to grow today under the direction of endowed curator Kaoru Ueda. Eminent historians um, of Japan, including Ramon Myers, Mark Petey, and Peter Deuce have also been Hoover Fellows. <clears throat> we would like to thank our co-host, the Japan Society of Northern California, for all of their help in putting today's event together. Thank you. Now, I welcome to the podium our moderator for today, Dr. Michael Oslin previously a professor of history, of Japanese history at Yale University and a visiting professor at the University of Tokyo, and currently the Patient J. Treat Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at Hoover. Michael. Thank you, Eric, and thank, thank you all for coming today. The U.S.-Japan relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world, bar none. Former ambassador to Japan, Mike Mansfield, started using this description in the early 1980s, as Japan rose and Asia loomed as more important to the world's future. Today, with the challenge and threat posed by China, the ongoing North Korean nuclear threat, the evolution of the global economy, and the struggle between liberal democracy and authoritarianism, Japan is, if anything, more important to global stability and prosperity, as well as to US national interests. The Hoover Institution's U.S.-Japan Global Dialogue is a new initiative that builds on the alliance's past to help shape the 21st century. We are excited to begin this new project, to think creatively about how our two countries can work together in a new era. We welcome your support, and we hope that you will find today's discussion a rich and enlightening one. We will have a panel today of distinguished former and current practitioners in the U.S.-Japan relationship, uh, and I will talk more about that in a minute. But before we move to the panel discussion, it is my pleasure to welcome His Excellency Koji Tomita, Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of Japan to the United States, for some brief opening remarks. 
Ambassador Tomita's diplomatic career in the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs spans 40 years. Most recently, he served as Japan's ambassador to Korea as Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's personal representative for the G20 summit in Osaka and ambassador to Israel. His personal relationship with the United States began when he studied in North Carolina for a year in college. Since he entered MOFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, he has also held leadership positions in U.S.-Japan relations, including Director General of the North American Affairs Bureau, Deputy Chief of Mission at the Embassy, uh, and Political Minister at the Embassy. So he is back for his third tour. Uh, Ambassador Tomita, welcome, and the floor is yours. Well, thank you, Misha, for that very gracious uh, introduction. One uh, minor detail he uh, didn't mention is the, the college I went in North Carolina is Davidson. And, uh, you know, the Davidson's uh, claim to fame in, in the Bay Area is uh, it's a school the Steph Curry went to, you know. So now you know it's also the school Japanese am ambassador went to. Well, thank you very much for uh, um, um, inviting me um, to this occasion. And uh, as Misha said, I spent um, uh, about a quarter of my career um, on Japanese relations. And the best thing about working on um, our alliance is that you get to know some of the most talented, hardworking, and caring people you ever want to meet with. And uh, also the beauty of it is you, you, you keep bump, bumping into these people. You know, one, you know, once you get involved in Japanese alliance, it, you, you develop a lifelong commitment to this alliance. So it's, it's you know, uh, keep, bumping into the people. Uh, so I'm very much delighted that today I, you know, reunited some of the, the, the people I have greatest admiration, uh, Ambassador Roos, Ambassador Haggerty, uh, General McMaster. Uh, so uh, I'm very much, very much excited about this initiative and also about the, uh, today's discussion. So as, as I stand coming from Washington, I, I, I think uh, uh, I'm supposed to give you an update on the state of health about Japanese relations. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to make a 20 minute long speech. Uh, it takes only three words, never been better. And uh, I, I may be hearing dissenting voice from Ambassador Roos uh, or Ambassador Haggerty, and I hasten to say bilateral um, relations were in, in excellent shape, you know, during their stewardship. But uh, I dare say um, now our cooperation is much closer and more, more consequential for the uh, um, global society as a whole. On Ukraine, um, you know, the, uh, the prospect remains very grim. Uh, you know, it's, it's heart-wrenching to see um, the suffering of, of the people there. So I'm, I don't mean to, uh, you know, um, uh, 
brag about it, but I think uh, it's fair to say that uh, uh, you know through working on Ukraine, definitely we raised our game uh, to collaboration. You know, uh, we've been working very closely, uh, shoulder to shoulder, uh, and introducing very robust sanctions against uh, Russia. Uh, we have been very work, working hard uh, in providing uh, humanitarian uh, and military assistance uh, to Ukraine, and we also working together, uh, trying to alleviate its uh, impact on global economy, including the energy market. And in that process, Mr. Kishida has made some very important decisions, uh, like uh, providing military assistance, non-lethal non military assistance. Although this is a non-lethal assistance, I think it would uh, supplies you know some of the people who, who who know the traditional reticence of Japanese in getting involved in a military cooperation. And also, there's a, on the diplomatic front, there's a, been a real teamwork. You know, uh, Prime Minister and President Biden been, you know, uh, engaging each other quite frequently after the uh, uh, conflict started uh, in the context of G7, Quad, or like-minded format. Uh, actually, I think they are going to meet each other, uh, see each other in Brussels in the next few days for the extraordinary session of G7 leaders meeting. Um, and of course, Kishida-san's been uh, trying to engage uh, President Biden, the European leaders, uh, Ukrainian uh, President uh, Zelensky, but also he's trying to reach out to the leaders of Asia, Middle East, and uh, even Africa, you know, so that we, we try to rally uh, the uh, nations around the world for the cause of freedom and democracy. So he's uh, called, uh, had a telephone conversation with the leaders of, for instance, Indonesia, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Kenya, and so on and so forth. And he just back from uh, his trip to India and uh, uh, Cambodia, the, the chair country of ASEAN this year. So there's been real uh, teamwork. And uh, I, I, you know, in my career, I haven't seen nothing like that. Uh, really. So, um, uh, again, I, I'm, uh, I'm not being overly optimistic about the situation, but uh, we definitely raised our game. And uh, in, a, in a broader uh, uh, picture, uh, you know, uh, we are, um, our main preoccupation is the uh, 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 the strategic competition uh, now emerging between democracy and autocracy, and uh, you know um, Ukraine is, is part of this this uh, broad picture. And one of the reasons why Kishida has been um, making these important decision is we are conscious that uh, in this competition. Nothing is divisible. You know, what happened, what's happening in Ukraine has an immediate impact on what is going to happen in Asia-Pacific region. So um, specifically what uh, we've been doing uh, uh, in, a, in a 
common efforts to address this challenge. I think greater details will be explored in the panel. But let me just outline um, this. Um, I think in this context, I think Japan and the US have been working in uh, focusing on three areas. The first area is, of course, the uh, upgrading our security our alliance, uh, you know, upgrading our deterrent capability, responsible capability uh, will be the, uh, you know, key part of, of our efforts. Uh, you know, it's it's natural because in in, in the uh, given the uh, increasing troubling uh, picture we have uh, in the uh, in our region, and I always in my speech I always always say that the Japan we we live in a very rough neighborhood, but you can imagine, you know, with the um, Russia, North Korea, and China uh, in very uh, vicinity, I think. Uh, upgrading our alliance uh, will be the uh, key focus of, of our collaboration. The, the second area we've been working on is mainly, but not exclusively, in the economic domain. And um, what we are trying to do is to find a synergy between what we are doing in Japan and what you are doing in the United States to, to strengthen our competitiveness and resilience. So this would involve, for instance, uh, increasing our investment in science and technology and innovation, trying to maintain an edge uh, in technological co uh, competition, protecting uh, you know, sensitive supply chains, including chips, uh, you know, precious metals, and so on and so forth, so that our you know, economy uh, and society can be more resilient. Uh, in the course of this, this competition. Also, we have to address the broader challenge which will impact our resilience like climate change and pandemic. So there are very active collaboration in these areas. And the third area is a diplomatic front. And uh, Japan and the United States are working very closely to create a community of nations sharing their values and principles. And most notable example is a Quad. You know, Quad has been uh, in existence for many years. But after, you know, uh, with the advent of uh, Biden administration, we have managed to upgrade uh, to that, to the leader's level. And, uh, uh, but Quad is the only start. I think we'll be, uh, you're going to see a more, much more active uh, uh, efforts to engage and reach out to the uh, nations in, in the region. And the one key aspect is, is the trade and investment. And uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the effort to realize our division of free and open into China, I think open and rural-based trade and investment will be the uh, key uh, vehicle. And uh, we very much welcome the recent announcement of uh, the Pacific Economic uh, uh, Framework uh, by the Biden administration. And we are looking forward to freshing out this idea in the, in the weeks to come. So I think uh, I'll give you a general outline of what's happening. And I think the uh, more detail will be explored and, uh, in the, uh, the following panel. But uh, let me thank once again for the Fuba Institution. Uh, for giving me this opportunity uh, to, to share my thoughts. Thank you very much.
Ambassador, thank you very much. Uh, I'd like now to call Ambassador John Roos and Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster to the, uh, to the podium. We'll start our discussion, and we are actually going to, hopefully, in a second, be connecting with Senator Bill Haggerty. Um, uh, we, had a, we had a perfect flow for the event planned, but Senator Haggerty has a vote in, like, five minutes. So we're going to uh, call an audible. We're going to go directly to him. I'll ask him a question, and then we'll, uh, we will hopefully start off with our discussion. So as soon as we have uh, Senator Haggerty, we will, we will start. Thank you very much. Senator, uh, and we know that you have to run to a vote. We know time is short, so um, I'm going to go right to you if I can. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Senator Bill Haggerty was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2020, currently serving his first term representing the great state of Tennessee. Prior to his election, he was the U.S. Ambassador to Japan. Uh, he is a lifelong businessman and started his business career with Boston Consulting Group, including three years in Tokyo, so no stranger to Japan before he arrived. Senator, the, the, the main uh, concept of, of our discussion today is cooperation. I'm, you're sort of behind me, so I'm sorry that I'm, I'm looking backwards. Um, the, main, the main idea is the cooperation, this new U.S. global dialogue uh, to chart the path ahead. And, and what we wanted to ask you was, having just come off a stint, uh, as ambassador to Japan, is what what were the key areas that you worked on in a very different Asian environment when the relationship between the U.S. and China shifted? What was the U.S. and Japan, Washington and Tokyo focused on? What mm -hmm. did you want to focus on more, and where do we go from here? Well, uh, first, before I start, I'd like to just uh, note my appreciation for, for the Hoover Institution, the, um, the, the role that you play in terms of strengthening U.S.-Japan relations, our posture in the Indo-Pacific is absolutely vital. Uh, it is a great honor to um, appear with uh, my good friend and predecessor, Ambassador John Roos. Uh, ambassador Roos is somebody whom I relied upon extensively when I served as ambassador. I still reach out to him to get his perspective on national security issues, economic issues in the, in the region. H.R. Uh, McMaster could not have been a better counterpart uh, working with me when I served as ambassador when he was the national security advisor. General McMaster, you continue to make uh, wonderful contributions to our national security and to, to, to being such a thought leader in an area that's so critical to the world right now. So thank you for your leadership and your ongoing friendship. And then to Ambassador Tomita, uh, I've enjoyed uh, our friendship very much. Uh, you play such an incredible role. Japan is very well served to have such an exceptional leader as yourself here, representing your great nation here in the United States. And the relationship that you continue to help forge between our two nations is one that I hope we continue to build on from Ambassador Roos's time to my time and in our previous jobs, uh, the time that you're carrying forward right now. I hope to continue to see ever strengthening relationships between the United States and Japan. We all know it's that relationship, the US-Japan alliance is the absolute cornerstone of peace and prosperity in the entire Indo-Pacific region and a region that's becoming ever more important uh, by, by the day, by the week, by the month. Back to the original question, Doctor, the, the, the areas of focus, as you mentioned, um, shifted pretty dramatically by the time I arrived in, in, in 2017. Um, I think the arrangements uh, in, in the region had been shifted in the very near term by uh, the posture that North Korea had adopted. You know, at that point, North Korea decided uh, that their that belligerence was the path forward. Um, they launched multiple intercontinental ballistic missiles over Japan. 
And what that did was was focus our very immediate attention on the alliance and on building, you know, a, a very strong, uh, a very strong posture vis-a-vis North Korea. Uh, we could not have done this. The United States, Japan, South Korea working together, uh, particularly the leadership of Prime Minister Abe at the time was absolutely critical to this. But but locking arms and putting in place some of the most uh, serious uh, economic sanctions that had ever been seen, certainly by the North Korean regime. Uh, we, we came together in a way that we were able to, to change the dynamic there, to, to calm it. Uh, we went to a couple of unprecedented leader level meetings in the region and really, I think, had an incredible amount of cooperation. Uh, it also brought to the fore the fact that we are much stronger together. And the three nations, again, uh, the United States, Japan, South Korea, I think did, a, did an exceptional job of coming together. It was my great honor to, 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 to be there at that time to work on that. Uh, if you think about our national security posture, uh, we've had, you know, the, the term, terminology has been used, we're pivoting to Asia, we're, we're, we're emphasizing Asia. This has been, you know, a bipartisan uh, effort to communicate the fact that the, the region is more and more important to America from a national security standpoint. Uh, when I served as ambassador, we actually saw a major increase in our defense budget, much of it oriented toward the region. Uh, joint exercises there, the Yamasakura exercises, uh, I had the opportunity to attend them multiple times to see our interoperability improve. Uh, it was visible, it was palpable, uh, and also very obvious to uh, our neighbors in the region, such as China, Russia, and North Korea that uh, our competence working together with, with the uh, self-defense forces in Japan uh, is ever, ever increasing. And I, I'm certain that that continues to this day. And uh, with Ambassador Emanuel's leadership, I'm sure that we'll continue to see that uh, progress moving forward. Um, I must compliment uh, Prime Minister Abe as well on his vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific. He was the one that articulated that vision. And it continues to this day. I've been very supportive uh, and, and applaud the the efforts that the current administration is undertaking with respect to strengthening the quad, the leader to leader relationships that we are establishing and moving forward, I think make a very positive difference in the region. And the more that we can see cooperation in that area, the stronger our national security and the stronger um, the principles of freedom, openness uh, will, will prevail in the region. Um, our economic security uh, was one of the things I was focused on very much as ambassador and continues to be a priority, I'm certain, to, to this day and will continue so. Uh, working as closely as we possibly can between the nations of Japan and the United States to deepen our economic ties, uh, it was a top priority of mine. Japan became the number one investor in the United States uh, during the time of, of my ambassadorship. I think the pandemic has put a ripple into the entire world market in terms of supply chains, investment flows, and, and those types of opportunities. But I'm leading a congressional delegation to Japan next month. We're going to be focused on, again, strengthening those economic ties, particularly in the areas of innovation where we can be competitive and help one another. There I'm talking about areas like artificial intelligence, chip manufacture, uh, electronic vehicles, and, and so much more. But we have a tremendous potential to continue to strengthen our ties. The same is true with South Korea. We need to continue to find those opportunities and deepen those economic connections. I know Ambassador Roos works on this on a regular basis uh, with his in, in investment platform. Um, that this is something I think that will remain a top topic for us. 
uh, from an energy security standpoint, um, I spent a good deal of time in that arena during the period I served as ambassador. Japan committed significant capital uh, for the infrastructure to import LNG from America, to import U.S. energy. Uh, we have significant challenges to our energy posture right now and our energy strategy. We've gone from a position of um, domestic energy independence, at least at the point that we were in a position to be a net exporter of energy, uh, to one where we're significantly challenged today. Uh, I continue to encourage the administration to look at all of the above solutions to uh, try to encourage capital to come into uh, the domestic energy market. And we need to find ways to work together with our allies in Japan uh, to, to create energy security for both of our nations, because I think it's in our not only in our economic interest, but also in our national security interest to do that. And Japan is well positioned to help us press that uh, deeper into the region. So I'll continue to focus not only on um, LNG and, and, and the traditional uh, fossil fuel industry and how to expand that. We have opportunities that we can pursue together with Japan in terms of clean coal, developing that technology uh, broadly in the region, but, but also uh, nuclear. In my home state of Tennessee, with Oak Ridge National Labs, we have great capacity to work together with Japan in that arena as well. And I look forward to facilitating that. Uh, we have opportunities as well to extend our relationships in the region. Uh, when I served as ambassador, uh, we penned an agreement with uh, the, the um, JBIC in Japan, our overseas uh, development corporation here. We, I also signed uh, for us when Australia joined that. It later became named the Blue Dot Network. I think that uh, the General McMaster may have had a great deal to do with that. And um, that was our effort to create an alternative to China's One Belt, One Road uh, infrastructure program. Um, the, the debt trap infrastructure play that, that, that China imposed in the region uh, left many people, many countries very concerned about the pitfalls of engaging with China. Our goal was to provide uh, market-based uh, alternative to that. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity to continue to grow that. We need to find op opportunities where we can work together with our allies in Japan to provide infrastructure funding opportunities for the smaller nations, the more developing nations in, in the broader region. We had a, a, another initiative that I'd like to highlight, and I think uh, Keith Kroc will be, if he's not there now, will, will be there to talk about it in much more detail. But that was our Clean Network Initiative. Uh, I worked very closely with the government of Japan uh, as we looked at the infrastructure, certainly here in America, there in Japan, and amongst our allies, to make certain that our infrastructure was kept clean, safe, and protected from vendors that might somehow pose a threat. Uh, particularly to our telecommunications infrastructure and 5G. Uh, that's an effort that needs to continue to, 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 to move forward and we have plenty of opportunity in, in, in that arena. And, and finally, I would just uh, close with this and say that uh, I couldn't have been more blessed to have had the opportunity to represent um, the United States uh, to Japan, our, our great ally. And I've told many of my friends this, um, even though I left my previous post, only my business card has changed. I remain committed. Uh, to, to this relationship. I see the strategic value of uh, a strong alliance between the United States and Japan. And I hope that everybody that's attending today or, or, or watching um, this in some other fashion uh, knows that uh, there could be no stronger ally of Japan here in the United States Senate than me. So I look forward to continuing to deepen our relationship. And I will, as you mentioned, I'm going to step out for a few minutes because I have to go cast a vote on the Senate floor, but I'll be back. So thank you.
Senator, thank you very much. Uh, we hope you'll join us again. Uh, we, we'd love to follow up with some of your questions. Uh, so we'll be here. Uh, so hopefully that vote will go quickly, and, and we'll be waiting to hear from you. Thank you again. Sayonara briefly. I'll be back. Sayonara. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, because we wanted to rush to get to um, Senator Haggerty before the vote, uh, I didn't get to really introduce what we want to do with the panel. You heard uh, the question. But first of all, I think this is probably the first, at least having done Japan for quite some time with a, a bunch of my colleagues who are here, uh, this is the first panel I can remember where we've had three former or current ambassadors and, of course, a national security advisor, former national security advisor, to come and talk about the, the length of time that we focused on this relationship and quite honestly how it's changed over, over the period. What I initially thought we would do is go chronologically. So I, I was actually going to start with Ambassador Roos. We, we've had to upend that a little bit. Um, but I'd like to return to that uh, if I can so that we can get a sense uh, over the past close to 15 years now of how this relationship uh, evolved. Now, you know, you, when you remember where we were in hopes and expectations of the U.S.-China relationship back in the 2000s and the first, uh, the first decade, and particularly the first part of that decade, uh, when you remember the, the idea that the, the alliance with Japan was something that was important and set and solid, and yet really there was a question of how it was going to work or, or what role it would really play in the world we presumed we were going to have with China, all of that uh, has been upended. And uh, I, I did not mean it as a cliche in any way to say that I think Mike Mansfield's uh, you know, apocryphal or, or prophetic comment uh, is really even more applicable today. Uh, it's something all of us have, have used for 25 years, but it really is applicable today, uh, particularly with the types of changes that started when um, uh, Ambassador Haggerty uh, was uh, in in Tokyo. So I'd like to roll back the clock a little bit and turn to John Roos to to ask him uh, about what uh, was going on in terms of cooperation. Uh, he had some uh, incredible moments that I'm sure he will talk about of, of 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 tragedy and natural catastrophe that forced the countries together. Um, before I do that, of course, let me let me introduce him. Uh, John Roos is the founding partner at Geodesic Capital, which is a venture capital firm that bridges Japan and Silicon Valley. So one of the few really focused uh, on the United States and Japan, and I think a critical uh, a critical player in in the space of of developing those types of synergies that uh, Ambassador and Senator Haggerty was talking about. Um, he was uh, previously chief executive officer and senior partner at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati. And of course, uh, ambassador from uh, 2009 to 2013, uh, and from 2014 to 2020, he was on the board of Sony Corporation. So again, a deep and enduring relationship with Japan. So, Ambassador Roos, welcome to the Hoover Institution, and back to your alma mater and your home turf of Stanford. Um, can you tell us what it was like working on Japan in those days, when, quite frankly, everyone thought China was the big thing? And what did you focus on? Well, um, first of all, Misha, thank you for including me uh, on this distinguished panel, ambassador, general, senator, <laughs> and private citizen. <laughs> um, Washed up general myself now. So. <laughs> um, and Misha, I want to uh, thank you um, 
the reason, one of the reasons I'm here is you were so invaluable to me and your writings and advice. Um, and so actually so many people here in this audience today uh, became friends, became advisors, became invaluable to me. Um, Ambassador Tomita, a general from a long distance, and uh, Senator Hagerty, as he said, we became good friends through the process, despite being on different sides of the aisle. And at, speaking of that, I am a Stanford undergraduate, Stanford Law School, and very rarely came to this side of the campus. Um, <laughs> so it's, a, it's an honor to be here. You know, um, it, it's interesting. I went to Japan with a traditional agenda in mind. Uh, Ambassador Tomito, you talk about the security relationship. We've all talked about the importance of the alliance. Um, we talked about the economic relationship. And we all talk all the time about the people-to-people -people connections. And so I had what I believe to be a traditional agenda in coming over to Japan, um, which was the absolute honor of my lifetime. And I will add the best job I ever had. And um, pretty soon that got tossed out um, because of uh, events that, that took over. And uh, I joke with uh, Senator Haggerty um, he had um, one prime minister when he was the ambassador. I had five prime ministers when <laughs> I was the ambassador. And most important on that is I came to Japan um, well-briefed and growing up with understanding the importance of the U.S.-Japan alliance. And that's going to be a theme throughout today. Um, but within a couple of weeks of arriving in Japan, there was the first change in government um, in 50 years, except for a small period of time. And the, L, uh, the uh, DPJ, Democratic Party of Japan, took over from the LDP. And the, one, one of the interesting things I found is that Washington and the whole national security um, apparatus was very well briefed, had personal relations, understood the LDP. But the DPJ coming in and Prime Minister Hatayama being the first ambassador, first prime minister uh, of the DPJ party, the first of three, um, had, had a different agenda in mind. And very soon after I arrived, um, there was, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, some pushback on the U.S.-Japan alliance. All the right things were being said, but the messages being sent were, we need a more, we being Japan, need a more balanced approach with Russia, with China. Um, and given current events, you can appreciate the implications of some of that. And in addition, um, many, most of you know about our situation with our presence in Okinawa. And um, the prime minister was pushing back on our presence in Okinawa. And so very early on, 
um, my ambassadorship was really consumed with reestablishing the importance of the alliance. And um, over and over again through different issues and different communications and opportunities, um, that was my main mission. And yes, there were security issues that we were dealing with and economic issues. The TPP was just emerging during that period of time. The pivot uh, to Asia of the, the Obama administration was beginning at that period of time. And many of the ongoing people, important people to people issues. But I quickly had to internalize the concept that um, the alliance, as much as we say, as much as we um, quote Mike Mansfield, um, cannot be taken for granted. And it's, it's, it's more than a paper. It's, it's a relationship. It's a deep relationship that needs to be nurtured and can be turned, it can be upended at any particular time. Now, it all worked out um, with each successive uh, Japanese prime minister uh, in, in the DPJ as well. There was a recognition that the relationship between our two countries was something special, something critical, and something that had to be nurtured. And, um, and so that really defined the first part of my ambassadorship. Um, the second um, part of my ambassadorship that you all know about, um, that again upended almost every issue I was dealing with at the time was March 11th and um, the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear crisis. And as all of you know, um, one of the biggest, second biggest nuclear crisis um, in history, um, the biggest crisis, humanitarian crisis, um, that Japan faced since World War II, and um, with the loss of 20,000 lives. And that was the first time um, that in my tenure, the alliance was really put to the test. And um, beyond the alliance, the relationship between our two countries, because the general would be much more knowledgeable than I am, but I saw firsthand, and you know, being the ambassador, you're in charge of the on-the-ground operations, but I saw firsthand how um, all the training, all the planning, um, you know, all the interaction, people-to-people -people connections within our military came together in order for Operation Tomodachi. Um, but beyond that, I saw um, how the American people, um, you know, both on the government side and, civil, and the civilian side, really came, stood up and said, um, we're here to help. This relationship is deep. And uh, this was first put to the test on a humanitarian basis. Um, but um, there are many lessons learned that led to a deepening of the alliance on both the military and civilian side uh, of the equation. The only other thing I will say is that while it didn't, a third thing that did not consume 
my ambassadorship, but um, was symbolic uh, of the of the relationship uh, between our two countries. Was uh, becoming the first ambassador to go to Hiroshima commemoration ceremonies, and that was something that um, I wanted to do from the very beginning. I was quite frankly, being a new ambassador, political ambassador, I was surprised that no one had ever done, had, had done it. Um, I was proud that it actually paved the way to uh, President Obama and every, every ambassador and secretary of state since has done it. But that to me was symbolic of a couple of things. Number one, ambassador, you talked about working together on some of these, whether it's the pandemic, climate change, the nuclear nonproliferation is another. And that was a major statement ultimately by President Obama of the uh, commitment of our two countries working together to eliminate uh, nuclear weapons that, as you see in the current environment, there are massive implications to that. It also, one anecdote, and then I will stop, um, one anecdote was uh, I was told um, when I went to, to the ceremony um, just to attend and then to leave um, without connecting to the survivors there. And um, I called an audible. I tried to listen to the State Department, but I just couldn't get there. <laughs> and I called an audible at the end where I went up to the survivors um, after the ceremony. And as I was approaching them, they applauded. And they applauded the United States of America, not the ambassador to Japan. And to me, again, you know, all these issues that we talk about, ultimately it comes down to those people-to-people -people connections. And that was another opportunity of many opportunities during my ambassadorship um, to help strengthen that relationship. So I'll stop right there. Ambassador Roos, thank you. Um, and, and we should note it was during that period that you were ambassador that really set the stage and allowed for a few years after you left in 2015, the, the revision of the guidelines of the Alliance, which was truly a generational change. It was, it, it really marked a moment where the Japan that so many of us had worked with for a long time was moving beyond the past. We were moving, as you noted, beyond the past of the relationship, but really beginning to shift towards the changes in the, in, that were needed to go forward. And that was, again, all due uh, to, to what you did and, and those of us who remember watching you at, at Hiroshima and watching you go to the survivors. Was some, it was just, it was a new era. It was very clear. So thank you for all of that. Um, so we're going to jump a little bit ahead in time, and I want to turn to my colleague, H.R. McMaster, uh, who served as National Security Advisor, as you know. Um, let me introduce him first and then ask a question. H.R. Uh, McMaster is the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's also a fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute uh, and a lecturer at Stanford's GSB, the Graduate School of Business. He serves as well as the Japan Chair at the Hudson Institute. 
Uh, he was, of course, the 26th Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs. Uh, before that, he was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army for 34 years after graduating from West Point. Uh, but he's a scholar as well as a gentleman. He holds a Ph.D. in military history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the author uh, most recently of Battlegrounds, but also of the very highly regarded Dereliction of Duty. So, H.R., let me ask you, you, you come into office, obviously didn't serve yet uh, as ambassador to Japan, but that seems to be the theme of our panel, so maybe you'll, you'll get there. Um, and we have somebody here who should have been an ambassador to, yeah, to that, Japan also, Ken. Yes. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, we want to bring up, uh, you know, old wounds, but, um, uh, but when you came in, you came in at a moment to, to continue the discussion that we were having with, uh, with Ambassador Roos, when the U.S.-China relationship had changed dramatically, and yet, in part, there had been so much development in U.S.-Japan relations for the previous decade that that shift was, I would argue, from the Washington perspective, more conceivable. I mean, if you hadn't been where you were with Japan, a lot of what I think we were talking about with China would have seemed like sort of a, a leap into the unknown, meaning, well, now what are you going to do? So can you tell us from the, the perspective inside uh, the Trump White House, where Japan, uh, where Japan sat in, in your thinking about Asia, your thinking about strategy more, more broadly, and what did you focus on the most? Well, first, I'll just say what a privilege it is to be in this great company here. Nobody's introduced you, I've noticed. And so, I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm here with a lot of experts on Japan. I'm a student of Japan and was from day one when I went into the White House quite unexpectedly. And one of the first, uh, one of the first phone calls I made was to, to, uh, uh, to, to my, my good friend Yachi-san, who is my, my National Security Advisor counterpart. And I told him, I need you to be my professor on, on Japan and, and on our, our relationship uh, because I know how important it is and I know that we're about to affect some pretty significant changes in foreign policy overall. So fortunately, thanks to Ambassador Roos, the tremendous work that he did, we had a tremendous relationship and the important point that he, he made, don't take it for granted. And I don't think we took it for granted at all. And what we recognized is that Japan was ahead of us in terms of a conceptualization of the free and open Indo-Pacific. And we have Abe-san to thank for that, I think. And so it had been really a decade, more than a decade, or about a decade earlier, when he had first used the term. And, and it was the perfect vision. Because what it did is it addressed for us a vision that was positive for the region, that was in direct, implicit contrast with the vision of the Chinese Communist Party. And what we were able to do over time is frame our approach together. We didn't develop U.S. policy and then bring it to Japan or to, to Bill Haggerty and say, hey, can you get the Japanese to sign up for this? We, we, we applied design thinking to the challenges that we were facing together from the very beginning. And we had some really important meetings to do that, but we, you know, we first tried to understand the nature of the principal challenges we faced challenge that was really proximate because of the aggression and the, and the provocations of North Korea, the North Korea problem, and, and, the, and our, our drive to, to try to achieve denuclearization, to ensure that the only hereditary communist dictatorship in the world doesn't have the most destructive weapons on Earth. And then, and then also to, uh, to focus on, on the, the major shift in policy and approach toward the Chinese Communist Party in full recognition that the assumptions on which previous policies were based 
they turned out to be false, right? Sometimes you get disappointed in life. China, having been welcomed into the international community, uh, did not play by the rules, did not liberalize its economy as it prospered, and, and did not liberalize its for, form of governance. Quite the opposite. And so what we needed to do is, is affect this shift uh, from, from cooperation and engagement with China under the assumption, hey, we could, we're going to change China this way, to a recognition that we needed to compete in a transparent way. And of course, again, the best way to do that was with a positive vision that was in contrast uh, to, the, to, the, to, to the actions and policies and, and approach that the Chinese Communist Party uh, had taken to the, to the region. We, had a lot of, we, have, we have other parties to thank for this. I think, thank you, Xi Jinping, I think, for <laughs> making it quite clear that this approach was overdue. I mean, I'm thinking of that man, Yang Jinshu's visit uh, to ASEAN in 2015, when he said, you know, hey, we're a big country and you're little countries. Get used to it. You see that same arrogance, you know, carrying over to the meeting in Anchorage with him and in Rome just this past couple of days ago. So there's been a broad recognition that we have to work together to advance our, our vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific, but also to do so in, in the broader context of the competition between our free and open societies and closed authoritarian systems. We did this really step by step with each other to try to understand the nature of this challenge and then to understand which vital interests were at stake and then to, to, then to craft very clear objectives that we agreed to. Everybody can see these objectives, can see the assumptions on which they're, they're based because they were declassified by the Trump administration in early uh, 2021, I think uh, right before uh, President Trump uh, left office, somewhat reluctantly, apparently. So, so the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, um, but the vision, that vision continues with tremendous bipartisan support. And again, the people, I mean, I, I want to thank more, more than anything else is, is was uh, really, uh, was Prime Minister Abe and, and those around him. And I think in particular, as we go forward today, that we should, we should try to clarify that approach and to think in, within these panels, what more can we do in a practical way to advance our efforts within that framework? And, and I think in particular, we have to recognize that, that there are two mi fundamental misunderstandings, I think, about the nature of the competition with China that we ought to address today. One of those is that, hey, this is really a choice between, between Washington and Beijing. And you often hear this from friends in the region, don't, hey, don't, don't force it to choose. Well, the actions of Russia in Ukraine, the horrible crimes visited upon the Ukrainian people, China's unabashed support for this and advancing really what Russia is doing with a continued campaign of disinformation, helping them avoid the economic and financial consequences. This should clarify for everyone, hey, the choice is not between Washington and Beijing. The choice is between sovereignty and servitude. And then finally, I think what we have to clarify as well is, is that we have to be able to compete effectively in, in this middle ground. We don't face a dilemma. We don't face a Thucydides trap. What we, we have is plenty of competitive space that we can operate in together and with like-minded partners internationally and avoid this false dilemma right, of, of either a confrontation, direct confrontation with China and a major war or supplication and passivity. So I, I think that, that re having reviewed the papers, which are excellent, that we have a lot that we've already captured. I really look forward to the, the discussion uh, that, that we carry on within these, within these four panels that we've, that we've developed. Again, kind of the way that we did with, 
with, uh, with Abe-san. I mean, we, we crafted this conference together, and you'll see, you'll see you know, Japanese leaders and scholars with, uh, with U.S. leaders and scholars on each of these topics. We'll introduce the topics uh, really in the, short, in the short kind of keynotes really within these panels, and then we're going to rely on all of you right, to enrich the discussion and help us come up with recommendations. HR, thank you. So, Ambassador Tomita, turning, turning back to you, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're now up back to the present day. Uh, you gave wonderful remarks and insightful remarks. I was actually getting mic'd up at the time, so I wasn't able to write down your three points, but uh, I'm, I'm going to try to remember them. But I, I, what Se I won't... Security, security economics, economics, and technology, number two, and diplomacy. Of course. Thank you. I paid attention, yeah. Ambassador. <laughs> Unlike our, unlike our panel host, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> so, so cold. Um, what I'd like to ask is we that... We split you guys up. <laughs> this is how it usually goes. Um, so we, we, we've, brought, we've brought the relationship basically up to you to today. You know, from Ambassador Roos, from HR, obviously from uh, Senator Haggerty, who's back with us. Uh, Senator, welcome. Um, we're going to ask uh, Ambassador Tomi to now, as we've gone through the through the panel, um, you're the inheritor now of a, of a really changed uh, relationship and environment, and yet there's still a lot that's outstanding. Mm -hmm. uh, we we have things that we've been working on for a very long time to ensure that we can operate the most effectively together in Okinawa and and other places. Uh, we have, un, I would argue, unfinished business on trade, certainly from our end, but uh, Japan has taken the baton and now leads in a uh, comprehensive and uh, progressive partnership, trans-Pacific partnership. Um, what would Prime Minister Kishida, what would you like to see in this short-term period of the next, the next administration? Having built on everything, where do you think we need to be in 2025? First of all, I, I think uh, the comments made by Ambassador Roos and uh, General McMaster remind uh, me, you know, how fortunate I am being able to to work as ambassador on the basis of a very solid foundation created by the predecessors like Ambassador Roos and uh, um, uh, General McMaster, and I particularly. Um, <laughs> Remember the days uh, Ambassador Roos was working in Tokyo. Uh, I was uh, working at the head, head office, uh, Deputy D Director General for North America, so I was put in charge of Futema crisis, and we worked together uh, on, on uh, the uh, March 11th. So uh, um, really, uh, uh, you know, I can't express my, you know, how, how grateful I am for what uh, Ambassador Roos did. Um, back then, and uh, uh, I really appreciate he keeping his active interest in uh, bilateral relations. And uh, coming back to, um, uh, to to your question, uh, I have to say two things. I mean, I, I, general, general, I, I made a general outline of uh, which areas we were working. Um, the first thing is this Ukraine. And this is, of course, uh, um, something taking place as we speak. But I, I think it's going to have a far-reaching ramifications. Um, you know, a couple days ago, I think uh, President Biden uh, spoke to President Xi Jinping for two hours, you know, asking uh, Chinese uh, 
um, responsible um, behavior uh, in the in the context of Ukraine. But how you know Chinese are going to behave in short term? More importantly, what sort of lessons is China is going to draw from this, this episode? And how this will be reflected in their, their future behavior in the region? I think this, this, what's happening in Ukraine is, it's, as I said, a far-reaching ramifications. How we uh, uh, think about our future. So I think that's, that's number one. It's, the issue in itself enormously important um, for, as I said, I mean, in my previous remark, uh, in terms of bilateral collaboration, but this is really very important subject. I think the second thing is uh, <laughs> trade and investment, and uh, you know we 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 like uh, everything the Biden administration doing in terms of uh, you know. Uh, working out uh, strategies uh, for the uh, strategic competition with China. But uh, we thought the, the missing link is the trade and investment. And uh, uh, I very much understand the political reality and, and in Washington, D.C., uh, which is not amenable for any major you know, trade initiative anytime soon. Um, but I think uh, as we, uh, um, as I said in my previous remark, in the context of creating uh, community of nations, sharing our values and principle, trade and investments is enormously important. And uh, that's the reason why I appreciate uh, the administrations now starting to develop a strategy. Uh, it takes a, um, some fleshing out, um, still matter, still uh, in blonic stage. But I think how we um, develop coherent approach in this area will be a very important part of our strategy for the future. So I, I just meant two, two things. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I think we may have time for a lightning round. I'd like to start with Senator Haggerty since we're lucky to have him back. Uh, very brief questions, hopefully some brief responses. We want to be respectful of everyone's time. Um, Senator, uh, you just heard um, uh, Prime Minister, uh, I'm sorry, not yet Prime Minister, uh, Ambassador <laughs> Tomita. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to get you in trouble. Um, Ambassador Tomita, talk about trade and investment. Uh, and obviously, you, you've spent your life uh, until uh, going to Japan in the Senate in business. Can you tell us from your perspective what role this, the Senate, what role Congress can play in promoting exactly that? We've had years of, of looking at initiatives between, in particular, the United States and China, and yet Japan as an ally, as, as one of the most not the most technologically advanced nation uh, in the world, in Asia, with a, with a highly skilled workforce. What role does the Senate have? What role does Congress have in trying to push forward a deepening of relations, of economic relations of the type that, that Ambassador Roos is pursuing? Dr. Osla, answer quickly, but, but on two levels. One, we need to make certain that America is the most attractive place to invest capital in the world. 
that has to do with our tax policies, that has to do with our regulatory environment, but to create an environment that's conducive to capital investment that allows us to have more cross-border connectivity. Uh, and I think Japan has been one of the absolute best investors in America uh, at, a, at a more micro level. Uh, I spent a good deal of time and spending a good deal of time uh, meeting with business leaders from Japan, actually also meeting with business leaders from South Korea, encouraging three-way uh, opportunities for us to work, particularly in areas like semiconductor that are so strategic, but uh, encouraging us to work together in terms of research and development, a joint investment, and creating opportunities, economic opportunities that will strengthen the alliance. So I think, again, at, at, at the Senate level, creating uh, the environment here in America that's conducive to that type of activity, that type of investment activity. Um, and then at the more, more personal level, I'm just investing my time to try to help facilitate the type of direct interactions between business leaders that need to happen to see our economic relationships deepen. Thanks. Senator, thank you. And, and, and thanks for coming back on. We do appreciate it. Um, Ambassador Roos, uh, I want to take a slightly different lightning round question for you. You spent a lot of time after 311 uh, and after um, Operation Tomodachi maintaining the types of, of people-to-people relationships that you so eloquently talked about. When people like me started with Japan, we had 40,000 Japanese studying every year in America. We had lots of Americans like me going over to Japan. We don't quite have that today. What, in your view, can we do to develop these types of people-to-people relationships that you put such an emphasis and continue to put such an emphasis on? Well, I'll be brief, but I think the private sector and NGOs have a lot to do with it. I, I I'm frustrated that um, the number, the interchange between Japanese students and U.S. students is still anemic. And I think in the private, through Operation Tomodachi, through the Tomodachi Initiative, which we started, but many of the initiatives in this group here is going to be absolutely critical to reversing that trend. And the good news is um, the level of um, respect between the young people in our two countries and the appreciations of cultures and et cetera is, is, is really growing uh, exponentially, I believe. So I think there's an opportunity there, but I don't think it's going to come from the government. Thank you. And as a, as a quick anecdote, when I was teaching Japanese history at Yale, uh, and this is in the early 2000s, again, those numbers had come down one year we had one Japanese undergraduate matriculate, just one. And of course, we had you know, hundreds uh, of Chinese uh, that would, would enter. And of course, in the, you had on the graduate level. So that was, it was shocking to, to see that, um, that era of what was uh, known as kokusaika, of internationalization that Japan had talked about in the 80s had really had, had shifted emphasis. And so the work that, that, you, that you continue to do with the uh, with Operation Tomodachi going onward is very important. Thank you. So, Ambassador Tomita, a lightning round question to you. Um, you previously, before coming to the United States, were the ambassador to Korea. So you have now the two core relationships for Japan in the region, two core relationships with the United States in the region. Um, we had had we've had a, a presidential election in South Korea last week. Uh, President-elect Yoon uh, is uh, reported as being 
warmer in his own view towards both Japan and the United States. What do you expect uh, going forward in Japan-Korea bilateral relations and on trilateral relations? I was afraid uh, this question was coming. <laughs> we did tell him it was coming. <laughs> well, um, first of all, uh, you, you, you all know that uh, um, about relations uh, between Japan and the, the, the Korea been going through a very difficult patch in, in recent years. But uh, even, even during this period, uh, we've been doing our best uh, not to allow this, this uh, bilateral spat to influence the effectiveness of our you know, security collaboration Total solidarity uh, in the region, and uh, I, I'm happy to report that we have been having a you know very robust uh, you know conversation on the situation in North Korea and so on and so forth. So um, I, I don't want to sound too optimistic, but uh, I think we, we've been trying to 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 manage. Uh, um, uh, uh, relations in such a way not to uh, negatively impact our, our trilateral collaboration. Having said that, uh, you know, if you look at a tri triangular um, relation, Japan Korea relation is the weakest link. And that has to be uh, um, uh, uh, restored uh, to, to uh, good health. And I, I do think. The, uh, the change of government administration uh, in, in Korea uh, will provide an opportunity uh, to try to move into new phase um, in our relations. Having said that, um, the, the difficulty we are being faced with is this, you know, Japan and Korea have always had difficulties in the past, you know, the, the kind of, um, problems we've been discussing are nothing new. And uh, in the past, we always uh, been able to find some sort of, you know, uh, solution, band-aid solution maybe, but something to, to tide over you know, five, six years. And unfortunately, problems come back to haunt us. But uh, the, the the problem in recent years is because of the, the some of the litigation in Korea, the the diplomatic space to work out all, all these compromise has been reduced very substantially. We we have very small diplomatic state space to work with because of all these uh, pending and already handed down decisions by the, the Korean court. So um, I'm sure that our government is, is to um, try to take advantage of a change in administration to, to explore the way to, to improve our relation. But at the same time, I, I think we need to find a way to uh, get around this constraint posed by the uh, judicial complications created uh, in recent years. Thank you. And a final question to HR, lightning round question. Um, being National Security Advisor is, is one of the hardest 
busiest jobs in the government. Um, how do, do you think that the senior officials in the type of position that you had, do they have enough time to think about Japan, to think about the relationship? What can be done so that it's not always a crisis call or a catch-up call, but that there's a, I hate the word, but a proactive element in the position that you had to thinking about this partnership and, and trying to make it more effective for both of our countries? Well, it's really important to get out of the day-to-day -day and the tactical kind of issues and to establish a framework for long-term kind of strategic problem solving. And the way we did that is we divested a lot of uh, authorities that had been centralized within the White House back to the departments and agencies. And then we established really 16 prioritized you know, first-order challenges that we were working on. Uh, and then we worked on them from a multinational perspective. So Yachi-san and I framed these together with our teams. Matt Pottinger, who's a who's a fellow here, a distinguished visiting fellow at Hoover, was instrumental in this connection as a senior director. And he convened an interagency group, including the State Department. We've got Dave Stilwell, who's had a huge impact on this relationship and on the shift toward the Indo-Pacific strategy. And so the teams worked on it together from the beginning. And I think that, that was the point I was trying to make earlier about uh, the importance of not working independently and then trying to reconcile views, but really working kind of from one document. And we had, you know, it's, it's quite appropriate, I think, that we're meeting here in the Bay Area. You know, it is the, the San Francisco system of alliances that we're talking about and the importance of, of, the, of the trilateral relationship between the U.S., South Korea, and, and, and Japan in that connection. We held a series of, of meetings uh, at the Marine Memorial Hotel up here in San Francisco, confidential meetings uh, between myself and Yachi-san and, and, uh, and Chung-Wi Young. Uh, and, and those were quite productive because of the work that we did in advance. And then what we did is agreed on these frameworks and we agreed on principles that we would try to adhere to relevant to the challenge to North Korea and the challenge from the Chinese Communist Party. And we were able to resolve, I think, a lot of tensions uh, based on the agreement of those principles and, and the way that we had, had agreed to proceed generally at a strategic level. And, uh, and I think that helped our, our presidents and prime ministers work, work together effectively as well. So I think you just have to take the time. If you're, if you're responding to events without an idea of how you can bend those events in your, with your response toward agreed upon objectives, and, and, and place them within a strategic framework, you oftentimes confuse activity with progress and might be taking short-term decisions that actually divert you from or complicate your ability to achieve the longer-term objectives and goals. So we had that in place. Um, and I'm really grateful for, uh, you know, for, for Yachi-san and, 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 uh, and the leadership, the Japanese leadership broadly, uh, with Prime Minister Abe and the team that he had at the time. HR, thank you. Um, we've, we've come to the end uh, of the lunch. Before I uh, wrap up with thanking the panel, I want to make a, a few broad thanks, a few notes. Um, first, again, with the Japan Society of Northern California, we're very happy to have partnered with you uh, on this, and we're, we're glad you all came. As, as HR and the ambassadors noted, we have an incredibly distinguished audience. We should have had, you know, 45 chairs up here instead of just four, so we're sorry we couldn't, you know, single out everyone, um, but all of you have been important to this relationship and continue to be important to the relationship, and we're very glad that we could work with the Japan Society of Northern California. 
um, out the doors in in our main uh, our, our main entryway uh, is an exhibit uh, on U.S.-Japan relations that are called from the Hoover Institution uh, Library and Archives collection on Japan, uh, put together by Kei Ueda, who's the, the head of our Japan collections, Eric Waken, uh, the director of Library and Archives, our deputy director. I encourage you highly to go take a look at that. It's just a, a fraction of what we have on Japan here, but gives you a sense of how important it's been to the Hoover Institution since its beginning to collect information on Japan as a rising power, uh, a, a, a competitor, a challenger, and then a partner for, uh, for decades. So please do go look at that. Uh, and I can't close before uh, thanking the panel without thanking our phenomenal staff who've, who have just been working day and night to, to put this together. Um, Jackie Johnstone, Lori Cameron Garcia, Mike Wang, Victoria Guzman, the entire staff uh, made all of this possible. And of course we have uh, stuff coming up this afternoon. So I want a, a shout out to them to thank them and catering and everything together. So if you'll join me in giving them a round of applause. Thank you, guys. Uh, and so to wrap up, um, Senator Bill Haggerty beaming in from D.C. Thank you so much, Senator. Uh, Ambassador Koji Tomita coming from D.C. for this specially. Thank you, Ambassador. John Roos, short drive, but thank you for coming in. <laughs> Ambassador and, and HR, thanks for coming down from the tower. <laughs> we don't see you often, but we appreciate it. Uh, thank you all, and please join me in thanking the panel. Mm -hmm.